Welcome to AEM Early Access, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. The diagnosis and treatment of sepsis is fundamental to the practice of emergency medicine. Obviously, early identification and treatment of these patients is important, and emergency physicians are encouraged to meet specific quality indicators in the care of these patients. Effective resuscitation depends on useful, reliable criteria for the identification of sepsis, and today we're going to take a look at how well those criteria perform with a new paper in AEM entitled, Most Emergency Department Patients Meeting Sepsis Criteria Are Not Diagnosed with Sepsis at Discharge. First author, Dr. John Littell, is here to discuss it with us. Dr. Littell is board certified in emergency medicine and critical care medicine and currently practices as an intensivist in the medical, surgical, cardiovascular, and neurosciences ICU at Abbott Northwestern Hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and as an emergency physician at Hennepin Healthcare. He's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the University of Minnesota, and we are thrilled to talk about this new work with him. Don't forget to read the full text of this article available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Dr. Littell, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. So before we get into the meat of your study, I'd like to talk about a little bit of background. So most of the listeners of this podcast will be familiar with the diagnosis of sepsis and sepsis treatment. And most of them are also probably well aware that we have these mandated measures around sepsis care. But let's walk it back a little bit to the time of Manny Rivers in the year that I graduated from residency. And this was giant news, um, an early goal-directed therapy back in 2001. So can you give us a little bit of background on that paper and then the evolution of sepsis care that has been going on since then? Absolutely. Yeah, I'll do my best. I'm humbled by the question. It's been a dynamic couple of decades in sepsis care. And Dr. Rivers' paper in 2001, his early goal-directed therapy study, was a landmark trial. And and he deserves a tremendous amount of credit for initiating a subsequent period of optimization in sepsis care, even though it's been turbulent. Um, so, Essentially, what Dr. Rivers did was to aggregate some uh, strategies for optimizing oxygen delivery in shocked patients that were known from preclinical and clinical data and to, into an algorithm, and then to deliver them early and aggressively in patients with signs of, of septic shock. And this was a... a Tremendous effort, and I mean that literally, uh, a lot of the resuscitative procedures, line placements, and monitoring were done by him or his assistants. Mm. And I I should also point out, just as a a point of pride, that this is, Dr. Rivers was one of the earliest emergency medicine intensivists, and uh, his, his profile on the you know, global stage in sepsis care is, should be a point of pride for all of us who've followed after him. Mm-hmm. And essentially what the study did was to, as I mentioned, organize resuscitative interventions into an algorithm. And so that meant, you know, for patients who had evidence of low cardiac filling pressures, uh, CVP, there was a pre-specified crystalloid bolus associated with that. If their mean arterial pressure was low, they had a pre-specified vasopressor response. And then that basically described both the control and intervention groups. 
But then for patients who had further evidence of uh, hypoperfusion, meaning their mixed venous oxygen saturation was low, and in particular if their hemoglobin was low, then they got two other interventions that have later in later studies been uh, controversial or their benefit hasn't been replicated. And that would be transfusing to reach a certain hemoglobin goal and then giving dobutamine to patients with low mixed venous oxygen saturation. Mm -hmm. And the reason there was so much hullabaloo uh, is that the mortality reduction in his intervention group was on the order of, uh, you know, 15%, uh, which is a tremendous amount in a randomized prospective trial for a highly lethal condition. Absolutely. So since Dr. Rivers' early goal-directed therapy study, and we can talk about this in more detail, uh, there's been a tremendous evolution both in how we define sepsis and in subsequent studies investigating how we best treat it. And I, th I think it's worth stating at least once, <laughs> that this is what's supposed to happen. There's supposed to be compelling data from one trial that then is, you know, vigorously debated and analyzed in different centers and multi-center and different uh, approaches tried and, you know, simplifying pruning. All those things are supposed to happen. And I know that, you know, sepsis can feel like a tumultuous area of research, but that's, you know, that's science in uh, process. That's, you know, that's real life. But in a nutshell, what's evolved since EGDT is a number of prospective multi-center trials comparing that rather strict algorithm with alternatives. And usually that's alternatives that eliminate some of the invasive measures like central venous oxygen saturation, eliminate inotropes and RBC transfusions. That's one kind of version. And then most of the multi big multi-center trials have also compared kind of a usual care arm or a uh, letting doctors do their own thing kind of arm. And the, the headline result there is that no difference is seen between these groups, which of course isn't the same thing as saying it doesn't matter if you treat sepsis early and aggressively. It just suggests that there uh, are multiple ways to arrive at good care. And along the way, most of us have gotten better at recognizing and treating sepsis early. And that I think that's uh, largely to Dr. Rivers' credit and to those who've kind of taken up the cause after him. So since since 2015, CMS has indexed the quality of hospital care for sepsis to the SEP1 or SCP1 core measure, this bundle of interventions to be checked off within the first few hours of suspected severe sepsis or septic shock. So can you go through what those interventions are for people who maybe aren't dealing with it on a regular basis? And do we have evidence now that those interventions do in fact save lives? So yeah, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign is this multi-specialty, uh, multi-society uh, effort to bundle time-sensitive interventions for patients with sepsis or septic shock. And this is where you hear about kind of a three-hour bundle and a six-hour bundle. And for the three-hour bundle, it basically uh, asks you to measure a lactate level, give broad-spectrum antibiotics with a blood culture first, and then to give a fluid bolus. And that's defined as 30 mLs per kilo. And that's for patients who are hypotensive or have a lactic acidosis. And so within the first three hours of a patient with septic shock arriving, you're supposed to check a lactate, get some blood cultures, give antibiotics, and a fluid bolus. And the six-hour bundle then is for patients who don't respond to the fluid bolus, you apply vasopressors, 
and reassess their kind of perfusion and volume status with a number of different tools and then remeasure the lactate. So I've just named a bunch of things that aren't particularly controversial. The controversy is in the details. So these individual items aren't robustly supported by evidence, meaning at the level of the size of the fluid bolus, how soon or how late you apply vasopressors, uh, and um, for that matter, uh, how sensitive we are to which patients should even get into this algorithm. And, you know, CMS has, and the Surviving Sepsis Campaign have even pushed this further in creating a one-hour bundle that's been particularly controversial. And there the controversy is partly due to the evidence and partly due to the fact that in real life, that's a really tight time frame for patients arriving to the emergency department. Um, one of the challenges there is that the, the clock starts for compliance when the patient arrives, not when their sepsis is recognized or diagnosed, and that can be really challenging to apply in you know in in the real life in real life. And, and one other thing is that the decision on the CMS side in terms of judging hospital quality is that if you if you miss any one of these, it's sort of an all or nothing. So if you fall short on one of these items, it doesn't matter how awesome you are at the rest of it, you you um, sort of fail compliance with the bundle. Well, um, it does make sense that we should be trying to identify patients with sepsis as soon as possible, um, but, but there are also potential harms to initiating these treatments to the wrong patients, which brings us now to finally to your study, um, which is the title of which is most emergency department patients meeting sepsis criteria are not diagnosed with sepsis as, at discharge. So that title is a little bit of a spoiler, um, but why, why, why did you, what prompted you to, to realize this is an important topic to investigate? Like what knowledge gaps were you interested in filling here? Well, everything I've just described in terms of assessing compliance uh, is drawn from discharge uh, diagnostic codes, ICD-10 codes at discharge. And mm -hmm. of course, we don't, in the emergency department, have the luxury of access to those. So we're dependent on kind of consensus criteria for early recognition of sepsis, which are obviously not the same thing as, you know, one week, one day, two weeks later, you know, what a patient's uh, discharge diagnosis is. And I think the space in between is compelling. Uh, be, for a variety of reasons. Number one, obviously there's regulatory scrutiny on how well we take care of patients who are eventually diagnosed with sepsis or ultimately diagnosed with sepsis. And number two, we want to make sure we have the right patients up front. So are our screening tools dialed correctly to identify the patients most likely to benefit from time-sensitive, important resuscitative interventions, you know, whatever we decide that they are. Um, and there is some signal in other studies that that link isn't very strong, and we wanted to explore that in our population, basically looking at the patients, the cohort of patients over several years who met uh, the kind of consensus definition for sepsis in the ED, how many of them ended up kind of uh, not when the quote unquote truth was known, at least as far as, you know, CMS is concerned, mm. being diagnosed with sepsis? Okay. So, so this is a 
retrospective observational cohort study mm-hmm. of adult patients presenting to uh, your large urban academic ED between 2007 and 2015. Mm-hmm. And so what, which specific criteria did you use in identifying patients for the purpose of this study? We started with both the sepsis 2 definition, quote unquote, which is the you know, infection plus SERS criteria. Mm-hmm. And the newer sepsis three definition, which combines infection plus uh, the SOFA score, which is a slightly different way of assessing organ system compromise, mm-hmm. and ultimately decided to, for you know, for simplicity's sake, in the publication, to use the the latter, so the sepsis three definition, both because it's the most kind of modern version and because the findings were similar in both populations, and for simplicity's sake. Uh, we used sepsis three. So what were your primary and secondary outcomes for the study? Yeah, uh, fairly straightforward. Um, we, for our primary outcome, we were curious what proportion of patients who quote unquote tested positive for sepsis in the ED were ultimately diagnosed with sepsis when they were discharged from the hospital. And I say ultimately not because, um, we were curious if they ended up developing sepsis in the hospital. I mean, if their you know discharge diagnosis indicated that the reason they came to the hospital was sepsis. And for the secondary outcome, that was a bit exploratory uh, and has to do with what I mentioned before about the mandated interventions and the evidence to support their use. So particularly here, no surprise, we're curious about this mandated relatively large crystalloid bolus for all comers with sepsis, and if that might be risky in certain patients screening positive for sepsis. So for the secondary outcome, we chose a few you know, plausible risk factors for harm from volume overload, basically you know, cirrhosis, renal failure, congestive heart failure, and then morbid obesity just in case the dose was calculated uh, by actual rather than ideal body weight. And we just looked to see how many patients who, quote unquote, appeared septic in the ED by criteria, but weren't septic when the quote unquote truth was known, how many of that uh, cohort had at least one risk factor for harm. Okay. So, so let's talk about your results. So how, yeah. how many patients met the inclusion criteria for sepsis three and then, and how many for sepsis three plus shock? Yeah. So we looked at both patients meeting sepsis three criteria, as you mentioned, and that was just over 3000 over that period. And then the subset of those who were hypotensive and had a lactic acidosis was about a third. So that was at 1000. Okay. So tell us, tell us about your findings. What'd you find? So we found a in our cohort, about 3,000 patients who met sepsis-3 criteria, and of that, about a third, so roughly 1,000, who were also hypotensive and had a lactic acidosis, and we called those sepsis-3 plus shock or septic shock. And of the sepsis-3 patients, about a quarter of those ultimately had uh, sepsis diagnosis at discharge. And by this, I mean an ICD-9 code that explicitly said sepsis, septic shock, septicemia, you know, one of those that are um, fairly clear and also on the CMS radar screen for compliance. And there's another set of criteria you can use to look for sepsis, and it's basically, 
you know, a code related to infection and a code related to organ dysfunction. These are referred to as the implicit sepsis criteria. And that was more, that was about 50% um, or just under. And so in other words, of our septic patients, um, the minority were actually diagnosed with sepsis at discharge, hence our title. And, you know, a similar uh, slightly higher fraction in the shock population of those 1,000 patients, somewhere between 50 and 60% received a sepsis diagnosis. So in other words, about 40% of patients who screened positive for septic shock in the ED actually had another reason for their abnormalities when they were ultimately discharged. What are the potential implications of this new knowledge that the majority of these patients are not ultimately diagnosed with sepsis. Um, what are the implications now of how we mandate sepsis care? Like, what would you want the audience to take away from the study? Yeah, I th so I want to be very clear. A single-center retrospective cohort study uh, is not necessarily new knowledge, but it does point us in the direction of trying to develop new knowledge. So what I take from this practicing in a large institution with a heterogeneous population and looking data over several years, and given the magnitude of this results, my take home is that the link between the sepsis three definitions that we apply in real time in the ED and the ultimate kind of determinant of whether or not a patient had sepsis or septic shock is not as strong as it ought to be for a couple of reasons. One, because we use the we use that information to make decisions about best practices, to define cohorts for clinical trials of new interventions in septic shock, and the government uses these data to decide how well hospitals are doing in sepsis care. And honestly, speaking as a as a practitioner who goes to faculty meetings and listens to compliance data, we we also use these to, in a way, judge the quality of our care. And it seems that based on our data, we may be overcalling some of those, or we may have work to do to get a better idea of how to link up the you know ground level provider on day one and the data we learn uh, at the time of discharge. So that's the first point I'd like to make, that the, the connection between our upfront sepsis criteria and what we've sort of decided is the truth about uh, whether or not sepsis was present is not strong. And given the fact that the interventions that were strongly pressured to apply to these patients up front have some risk and not overwhelming signal for benefit, or let's say an, ev an evolving signal for benefit, um, we have to be careful that we're not harming patients who end up screening positive for sepsis but not actually being diagnosed with it downstream. So are, are you doing additional work in this area? Do you have any other studies in this area planned? Or what study do you feel like should come next? Uh, personally, not at the moment, although uh, Mike Piscarich, our senior author, is very active 
in this space. And I'd, I'd like to point your listeners to the recent statement by ASEP addressing the CMS one-hour bundle. And um, I think that that group, and I mentioned it because Mike was a part of it, along with a number of other serious thinkers in this space, I think they did a very nice job of uh, showing their work, basically thinking through the current level of knowledge in sepsis care, both for its pathophysiology, its early recognition, and its management, and adding a counterpoint to the the one, three, and six-hour bundles. And so I think that's a really useful read. You can find it through ASEP's website. Um, basically, you know, Google ASEP sepsis bundle, you'll find your way there. And uh, the frustration that I think sometimes frontline providers feel in sort of definitions and mandates uh, changing all the time is real, and it can help to to read through that uh, and kind of understand where things where things stand. And so Mike and others who are working in this space are are actively working to refine our understanding of how to recognize sepsis patients and what treatments are most effective for them, to what extent we can allow some provider discretion in, let's say, the volume of a fluid bolus or the timing of vasopressor initiation, uh, etc. I think what what our paper does is provide maybe some momentum there by introducing the concept of potential harm, even though we're not powered to, you know, to detect that as a primary outcome. I think it's a very interesting space to explore uh, because we've certainly seen other treatment mandates um, that have resulted in unintended outcomes around pneumonia and other things like that. Yes, yes. Well, I um, am going to keep watching this space. So, uh, so thank you very much for that. Um, and thank you so much for your work. I think it's really important. It's going to be um, pointing the direction, I think, for for a lot of people looking into how we do sepsis care. So thank you again. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. It is, we've certainly had like years of debate and discussion about sepsis and it can make one's eyes glaze over, but it's, it's a really fascinating area and it's such a common and lethal problem. And the, the evolving science is, is actually pretty fascinating if we can get past the, the sense of um, being judged by regulatory criteria. <laughs> Well, thank you again. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. The full text of this article is available on our blog at brownemblog.com, open access for a limited time. Check out all of our podcasts on iTunes. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.